Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, are carrier groups, traditional fighter wings, and infantry divisions anachronistic, or will they remain timeless assets in both conventional and unconventional warfare? And our guest today is Bing West, best-selling author, former assistant secretary of defense in the Reagan administration, and a member of Hoover's military history working group. Bing, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So the prompt, again, for this piece, are carrier groups, traditional fighter wings, and infantry divisions anachronistic, or will they remain timeless assets? And you begin your piece for Strategica by saying that that is not a particularly close call. Explain that. Well, it's very simple. Um, if you really look at America and its military over time, for 200 years, we've adapted gosh darn fast. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we've been preeminent around the world. I have no problems with the fact that we'll be making changes as, as time goes on uh, because we're in, innately innovative and we're remarkably internally uh, contradictory. We argue with each other. Uh, you go on the websites for the military about our strategy for the last 10 years and you say, wow. I mean, no one's holding back sort of saying we should have done this, we should have done that. As long as we have the capacity to adjust, uh, I, I am confident that we will make our force structure relevant as we go along. And you make this point in your piece. You say the American military remains its own best critic, constantly debating internally and reinventing itself externally. Bing, if we replaced the American military in that sentence with virtually any other part of the federal government, the resulting sentiment would be risible. Most large federal institutions are – they're notoriously inefficient. They're notoriously resistant to innovation. Why are we fortunate enough to have the military be the exception? You know, that's a, that's a gosh darn interesting question, and I, I, a lot of people are going to get very angry with what I'm about to say, but I'm just going to blurt out, I think, what's in my heart, and it's because of the kind of person that goes into the military versus the federal government. Now, I've just made a lot of enemies that are listening, but look, let me, let me just put it, put it out there straight out. The people who go into the military on the cutting edge want to be warriors. Do you know that we only we only now uh, have one half of one percent of the population that goes into the military? Can you imagine yeah. it's that tiny? Yeah. For instance, in in the entire United States of America, the United States Marine Corps, which is the most lethal fighting force the world has ever seen, the Marines have targeted to recruit every year what they call a propensity group of 150,000 young men, of which they need 30,000. Well, what does that mean? That means that after so many years of recruiting, they know the kinds of guys who want to be, who want to join the Marine Corps. And out of the entire country, with millions of graduates of high school every year, they know that there's about 150,000 of them, the kinds of guys that want to be Marines, and they only have to get one out of every five of them. So if you look on the military side, they are going after a particularly, particular kind of person who most of whom you can describe simply by using the word warrior. They want to fight. They want to go out and prove themselves. Now, if I say federal government, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Bureaucrat. 
Right. So you get people who don't want to take risk and they don't want to be in the private sector and they'll find a nice niche at the Department of Education or the Department of you know, HHS or something, and they'll be happy for the, for, for the next 30 years. And, and you, you need agencies to churn out things, but they've gotten too big. But they have an entirely different frame of reference for looking at the world than people who join the Marines and the Army and the Air Force and the Navy. You know how's that, that for how's that for that, an answer? That's a good one. Didn't want. <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, you you note in this piece, I'm quoting you here. Through 2015, America's wealth has enabled a Pentagon budget of around 600 billion dollars, so large that diverse visions of the future, for example, deter China and fight Islamists, have not required trade-offs among force structure. Uh, Bing, is is that sustainable? Given the pressures that are on the defense budget and for that matter on the broader federal budget, are we going to get to the point where we have to start making tougher choices about where we're putting the resources? This is what really worries me. And right now the trend is the trend is very seriously in the wrong direction. Oh, somebody might say, wait a minute, Bing, you just said there's six hundred billion. Yeah, that's that this year and next year it's it's five hundred and sixty and then it's five hundred billion and a billion doesn't buy you what it used to, all that kind of stuff. The only way it seems to me you can look at national security is it's saying, look, consider this. Our nation is nothing more than, than one huge house, a mansion, okay, a, a, a city on a hill or a mansion on a hill. So every year our wealth goes up. We increase the size of the mansion, et cetera. And then along comes, we say, well, you know, we, we want to use money to do different, different things. Therefore, we're going to cut our insurance. And if you were the homeowner, you'd say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are you talking about? So I can't replace the house? No, 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 but don't worry about it. You say, you're out of your mind. I'm going to keep a fixed amount, say 4% of my wealth for insurance. We're not doing that. We're saying national security is our insurance. But because we have so many other demands that people want money for, we're going to keep cutting that insurance back. And at some point, if you continue that, someone's going to call you a bluff on one side or the other. I, I am very disturbed by what China has been doing in the South China Sea, and we haven't done much about that. And China stealing 30 million records, and we kind of shrug it off. What happened there? Why didn't we have... Um, uh, a system in place, you know, it, it, it flabbergasts me. And I worry that you can draw down too much and you don't have enough when you're called out. When we're thinking about that budget picture, what's the trade-off, if there is one, between uh, personnel costs and the size of the military? Does the level of pay and benefits that we have right now pose any difficulties in getting us a, a force the size that we need? Well, not only does it cause difficulties, I think it's unsustainable. Look, what's, hap what's happened in the military is what's happened in society as a whole. Everyone wants free money. So the number of people going on to Social Security and disability on Social Security has skyrocketed. Unfortunately, inside the military, that same tendency is beginning to show itself. Post-traumatic stress disorder, if we had the payments now, and, and if we had the payments that now exist in 1945, we couldn't have fought on Iwo Jima. Imagine everyone on Iwo Jima, every single Marine coming off Iwo Jima, every single soldier on Normandy Beach 
had some sort right. of stress disorder. Right. And if we had to pay them for the rest of their lives for that, we'd break the bank. 40% of the entire force now getting out, when they get out at the age of 24 or 25, say they have PTSD or another ailment in order to get money for the rest of their lives. We have to stop this, not just in the military, but in the rest of society. But I'm not accepting the military. If the military continues to drive up personnel costs the way it's doing, it's going to bankrupt itself. And the military knows this. The military knows this. But you have these... Just like in the private sector, you have lobbies to give me the money, give me the money. Among the retired community in the military, you have the same lobbies. And the Congress, unfortunately, keeps rolling over for everybody. And it's just not right. It's not right what we're doing in the military. It's not right what we're doing in civilian society. You can see I'm not going to be running for office. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from the financial considerations, the other point that you raise in your piece as a potential danger for the military is how centralized the decision-making processes have become. So explain that dynamic but also how it happened. How did we get there? I don't like this one at all, but <laughs> what's been happening is, is two things. First, digital technologies. You know, you go to every movie and immediately you see little little green men scurrying around when the White House is sitting there watching them in fascination as they pull off a raid somewhere. In fact, when we killed Osama bin Laden, you dealt with that famous picture the White House loves showing all the civilians, you know, the Secretary of State, you know, with her hand over her mouth and the president sitting there and the vice president. And I counted there were 11 civilians and one military person costed around that screen in the White House watching a raid by a squad 10,000 miles away. So we have technologies that enable you, if you're at the top, to put your finger on anything. And the tendency to do that for any human being is too much. So not only are the civilians doing it, but so are the generals. The other thing that's happened is that we want to fight a war without hurting anyone. If I hear another general say, wars are not won by killing, I'm going to scream. I mean, <laughs> they, they shouldn't be generals. It's, it, if, if I had a chief of police who said, criminality rests upon the mind of the human being and is a sociological problem that cannot be solved by arrests, I would say fire him. You know, let him go out to a university and, and teach sociology, but get him out of the police force because his job is to put criminals behind bars, not to give us philosophy. And our generals have become the same way. We want to fight wars, but not hurt anybody. We want to have immaculate bombing that we control from the top that that is controlled now today in Iraq not one pilot is allowed to drop a bomb he has to call back to the operations center hundreds of miles away where they're watching on the screen and a general is sitting there with a lawyer and they decide whether he can drop a bomb so two things have happened we have digital technologies that have, have enabled people at the top to make the decisions, and we've gradually had a notion of warfare that is warfare without harming anyone, that, that's, a, that's an oxymoron. So you put those things together, and I really worry about generals sitting up there telling squads what to do, and I've seen too much of it. 
Well, to this point, you mentioned in the piece that the military likes to talk up a concept called the strategic corporal and that the rhetoric there often doesn't match up with the reality. What's that concept supposed to mean and how does it play out in practice? If you ask most, if you ask most generals, they will tell you that we are decentralizing decision-making and that our concept is that the person at the top, the general, gives a mission. He'll say, I want to prevent the enemy from seizing this territory, and then he'll say, that's my intent, therefore hold the bridge. But what he, what he then says is, but I'm leaving up to the, the colonel or to the lieutenant how he does that, because he may get out there and discover they're not going across the bridge, they're, going, they're, they're swimming across the river. So he, he, he may change what he's doing on the battlefield, because it's decentralized. That's what they say, but that's not what they do. And it, it really bothers me that, that, that we're not carrying out what we say we should be carrying out. So final question, Bing. Let's say that January 2017, the new president of the United States calls on you for guidance and he asks, what are the two or three structural factors that I need to be focused on to make sure that we have the best fighting forces we can to deal with the variety of potential threats that the country faces? What are you telling him? I would say, sir – your National Security Council staff under President Obama grew from 200 to 600, and you took all power away from the Secretary of State and the diplomats. You took all power away from the Defense Department and the military, and you took all power away from the intelligence community. So I only have one firm piece of advice, Mr. President or Mrs. President and Madam President, Cut back your staff on the National Security Council to 60 or less and tell them their only job is to coordinate, not to be making policy out of the White House. And then pick good people to be the secretaries of defense and state and let them do their job. Get back to decentralization. President Obama, everything that now happens in national security happens out of the White House. And it has infuriated the entire system we have, and it's, sent, it's, it's turned all of the entire system, thrown in on its head, the system that we have. It's crazy, and that's the thing I'd recommend to a president. Stop it. All right. My guest has been Bing West, former Assistant Secretary of Defense in the Reagan administration and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his essay and those by other members of the group by visiting us online at hoover.org slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Bing, thank you for joining us. Thank you. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson. 